Greetings, Midwestern Marks viewers. I'm Carlos Garrido. Along with me for today's interviews are comrades Eddie Liger-Smith. Hello. And comrade Mitchell K. Jones. Hello. Today we'll be discussing the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, its history, and its struggles against American imperialism. Joining us to discuss the DPRK's history and the experience of its visits there and much more is comrade Derek Ford. He is an assistant professor of educational studies at DePaul University and the editor of the Party for Socialism and Liberation's theoretical site, Liberation School. Dr. Ford's recent book, Marxism, Pedagogy, and the General Intellect, makes key contributions to contemporary Marxist thought, knowledge economy, and education. This book is currently being reviewed by Midwestern Marx editor, Kala Winshill, who will soon provide the Midwestern Marx readership with a stellar book review. We will be linking the professor's book in the description to the video. So comrade Ford, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for reviewing the book too. For sure. All right, so the first question we wanted to ask then um, was, could you give us a brief summary of the conditions in Korea before the 1945 divide along the 38th parallel? Sure, well, I mean, I think really to make sense of Korea uh, and the contemporary issues um, surrounding the peninsula and the you know, geo broader geopolitical uh, um, struggles right now, it, it, I think it makes sense really to begin in 1910, um, although uh, that's when Japan's colonization of Korea was sort of formally, um, you know, sub, uh, 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 instituted, uh, although the conquest really started earlier in 1876 uh, by the forcing open of uh, several ports, uh, particularly in Gangwa Island uh, on the west of the peninsula. And then there was sort of a series of legal and political and military steps, uh, or at least the threat of, of military force uh, in which Japan formally annexed Korea in 1905. Um, and then, uh, well, it really annexed Korea in 1905, uh, but it formally annexed Korea in 1910. Uh, and really, I mean, like all colonizations, you know, the Japanese colonization was particularly brutal uh, in terms of, um, you know, physical, force, uh, but also the cultural elements, you know, so um, Korean people weren't allowed to uh, keep their Korean names, they had to take Japanese names. Um, you know, they were dispossessed of their land through a process of basically primary accumulation. Um, and uh, even uh, the English spelling of Korea was changed. Uh, it used to be uh, with, spelled with a C. Uh, and after that, it became spelled with a K, so that it came after J in the English alphabet, um, which just goes to show you just sort of how uh, insidious the colonization process was really, you know. Um, and, you know, so Japan at the time was a growing industrial power, so it needed obviously raw materials, it needed cheap labor, um, and it was also uh, had an increased sort of productive drive uh, during World War One because uh, you know, European manufacturing was, uh, you know, dedicated to, uh, to the war pretty much. Um, and uh, the, the sort of roots of the Korean resistance, you know, really are located usually around 1931 um, when, the, when Japan created a sort of a puppet state uh, in Manchuria which is where um, a lot of the Korean resistance fighters were, uh, which is also where the Chinese resistance fighters were, who were also fighting against Japanese colonialism. Uh, and so, you know, by doing so, you know, Japan sort of inadvertently united the Korean and uh, Chinese communists and the nationalists and the other sort of tendencies. There were some anarchist tendencies at the time. Um, I mean, there were, of course, you know, more, there were significant Things that took place before then, uh, like in 1919, there was a there was a, a, a massive strike and protest movement across the nation that was violently repressed um, and and defeated, and that was you know really the sort of the, the lesson of the need to take you know armed resistance um, in in terms of the the Korean liberation struggle, um, and then you know there was also the 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 forced. Uh, basically the kidnapping of Korean people um, who were brought to Japan as, uh, as slaves. Um, the, the, the Koreans call them forced laborers now. Um, 
And so it was, but it was basically a, you know, a form of, a form of slavery uh, because again, right, Japan needed, uh, needed workers and it wasn't going to build the productive forces in Korea. It wanted to keep those in Japan. So, um, you know, Korean laborers really built all of modern Japan, you know, um, working the dangerous jobs for, you know, the lowest pay, um, building the roads and houses, you know, that still exist today. And then there was, of course, you know, an extensive Japanese network of sexual slavery uh, of, of Asians and particularly Koreans um, who were systematically, you know, raped and beaten uh, dozens, you know, times a day, um, you know, when they became sick or they were too old, they were, they were murdered, you know, and these so-called, there were, you know, so-called comfort women um, came from, you know, various places, Taiwan, the Philippines also, um, and of course, that's a struggle, you know, like the Korean struggle that still isn't finished today. Uh, and, you know, there were, there were ultimately about, you know, like, uh, I think, uh, 2 million Jap uh, Koreans who were kidnapped uh, from Korea and forced to go to Japan. Um, and, you know, these, these are issues that also remain unresolved. So there's, but as a result, there's, you know, there's a Korean community in Japan that faces a lot of discrimination today. The struggle is also, you know, on, in, uh, in Japan as well. Um, so it was characterized, you know, by brutal colonization and then by, you know, fierce and, and incredibly heroic resistance, right? Um, that was organized uh, in, in consultation with, sometimes un, under the direction of the Third International, the Comintern, the Communist International. Uh, and there were at times, um, you know, divisions between the, uh, I mean, you know, obviously within the Chinese, right, uh, movement uh, between the nationalists and the communists who uh, one time were fighting each other, but who, uh, you know, for a long period of time, actually, you know, the, the, the Chinese communists actually put on the uniforms of the Kuomintang, you know, um, which, you know, imagine that, I mean, talk about strategic flexibility, right, putting on the, you know, you're shooting at each other and then you, you, you put on the uniform later, right, and fight with them alongside them. Um, and, uh, and then there was there were some struggles, you know, in terms of the subordination of the Korean struggle to the Chinese struggle under the direction of the common turn, you know, a lot of really, you know, I mean, you know, obviously, like any movement, you know, especially an arm, armed movement that lasts decades, a lot of contradictions. Um, and navigating those contradictions and uh, continuing to fight are really difficult things, you know, and that's really what, um, uh, what allowed or facilitated the co coalescing of forces around uh, Kim Il-sung eventually uh, after the, the liberation of the North um, uh, because of, you know, his ability to, to, to think and to fight and to organize um, amidst these contradictions. And, um, you know, this is where the, the Juche philosophy comes from. And, you know, at one point, you know, the Japanese had a special Kim detachment that was just tasked with hunting down Kim Il-sung because he was, you know, such an effective fighter, such an effective organizer. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, even uh, like, you know, he, he was celebrated throughout Korea, obviously. And uh, even after the division, um, you know, he was so celebrated that the, that the dictatorship in the South tried to say that the current Kim Il-sung was an imposter, right? Because like this, you know, he was so revered. And so they try to say, no, he's dead. This guy's an imposter. And I think it was in the middle of the 1970s when a Korean, when a South Korean scholar, like, you know, definitively proved that he was actually the real Kim Il-sung. And, you know, in South Korea at the time, people stood up and started cheering, you know, they were so excited about that. Um, which tells you also that Korea was, you know, a, a unified nation, right, for, for thousands of years, um, and uh, in particular under the Chosun dynasty, which is really what a lot of the uh, uh, Koreans still call their language. Um, it's not, I was corrected uh, it, uh, when I was in uh, Tokyo with the North Koreans a couple, two years ago, I think it was, because uh, I said Hanguga, uh, Gangbulul, um, Basically, you know, I'm studying Korean. They said, no, Chosono, Chosono. It's not Hangul, Hangul, um, it's Chosun. Uh, so I think that, I, I don't know if there's more that you want me to say um, in terms well, of- So that's kind of taking us closer now to uh, the US involvement and everything. So how did the, the separation of the country arise along the 38th parallel? 
and uh, how did that set up conditions for the Korean War? Um, and what was the, ro the role of American imperialism in the Korean War and prior to the Korean War? And then after the war, what effect did it have on the Koreans? Okay, you might have to remind me about the latter parts, but um, thank you. For, uh, yeah, it's a good question. So, um, you know, World War II was like World War I in that it was an imperialist war. It was a war between the imperial powers over their territories for a redivision and repartition of the world, but it was obviously quite different in that the Soviet Union um, existed and uh, served as a, as a counterforce. And uh, while the imperialists were warring against each other, they were also hoping that the Soviet Union would um, would fall, you know, to, to the Nazis. Um, and it became clear that that wasn't going to happen um, and that the Soviets were uh, helping the, uh, you know, in the anti-Japanese colon uh, anti colonial struggle, anti-colonial struggle. Uh, and uh, essentially, you know, what happened was on that night of April 10th, 1945, uh, Dean Rusk and Charles Bonesteel, who were two junior you know army officers uh they went into a room and they took a national geographic map and they drew a line you know across the 38th parallel um not, neither of them spoke korean or had ever been to korea or knew anything about korea uh they drew it because it was roughly in the middle and it would allow uh the us to keep seoul which was the capital um and the soviets agreed to that um, and this, you know, so the, the deal was basically that the US would occupy, because they knew that if they didn't do anything, if they didn't negotiate, the Soviets would sweep through and liberate, you know, all of Korea and the power would go to the Korean communists. Um, and so the deal was essentially that within, um, I think it was three years, might've been shorter than that, um, that the US would, you know, take command in the South and the Soviets would take command in the North and then, you know, the forces would leave and Koreans would be left to, to determine their own destiny. Um, but, you know, the first thing that the Soviets really did on August 20th of that year when they entered was they issued a command to set up uh, people's, uh, you know, people's committees, which were actually already organically arising, um, you know, during, uh, during the anti-colonial struggle um, you know, which were largely, you know, guided by communists, uh, groups of peasants, workplaces, uh, neighborhood committees, uh, people's committees. Um, and so, you know, that's what the Soviets did. They said, you know, set up people's committees, that's where the power is going to be. And really, the entire time the Soviets were in, uh, were, were in the North, you know, all they really did was rubber stamp the decisions that, you know, the grouping that would later become the Korean Workers' Party made, you know. Um, which is obviously the exact opposite presentation that we're given uh, today uh, in the United States anyways. And, you know, obviously the exact opposite of what happened in the South where the United States installed Sigmund Rhee as a dictator. Sigmund Rhee of course was Korean, but he was actually really um, hated throughout Korea. Um, and, you know, he was like an Ivy, you know, he had been like, yeah, I think he was, he was a Princeton graduate, right? I mean, he had been like Ivy League schools in the United States. Uh, so they flew him to Korea and, you know, there's the president. And, uh, and you know, there's, there's videos of the Japanese flag being lowered and the United States flag being raised right afterwards, right, in the, in the South. Um, and the, the main thing is that nobody at the time accepted or believed or could even fathom the idea that Korea would be, would be separated, you know, for long. Um, that, you know, so an artificial separation, obviously, uh, Korea had been, you know, so unitary, it still is, you know, like there's a Korean culture, right? Um, obviously, there's, you know, divisions and antagonisms, like within any nation, within any culture. Um, but, you know, it had been unitary for so long, and it still is in many ways unitary. Um, and that, you know, so really, um, you know, the, the, the war, sort of began, you know, 1931 or 1910 when the resistance started or 1905. Um, but, you know, especially in 1948 when um, the Republic of Korea was established in the South in August of that year, uh, which wasn't supposed to happen. And it was actually in response to that that the, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was, was established. Um, before that, the, you know, the, the party didn't see itself as a state um, because it was only had part of its, its country. Um, and so it was sort of the, the, the even the, the, the erection of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was a response to the artificial 
proclamation of the Republic of Korea. Um, and there were, you know, obviously a lot of, uh, as I said, you know, contradictions in different groupings. The communists were clearly, you know, in the leadership. Um, but because Korea is between, you know, um, well, you know, what would soon become the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, um, you know, there were a lot of different sort of political tendencies, even within the left, even within the communists. Uh, and they needed they needed to be unified, you know, and that's really when the decision was made to unify around Kim Il Sung, um, because it, it was an organic decision, but it was also a strategic decision, you know. Um, they needed, you know, they needed like a, a clear identi identifiable person around which to rally, um, and uh, you know, and he was your like the natural choice, right? Um, and there were really endless skirmishes over the border, you know, between 1940. 1945 um, and uh, excuse me, and June 25th of 1950, when the when the U.S. war against Korea officially started, um, you know, endless skirmishes because neither side accepted, you know, that they would only get half of their own country. You know, the 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 redictatorship didn't accept that they would get half. Uh, the Workers Party didn't didn't accept that they would get half. You know, because you know, I mean, they they. And you know they they should um, so there were endless skirmishes back and forth you know and but it was really um, you know I don't know what the historical record says right now what the sort of consensus is uh, for a long time it was that actually um, you know well what really matters is the class character of the war you know like we don't judge the civil war by saying like who shot first and like if the south you know, shot first, then we support the South. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't make any sense. You know, we support the communists because we support our class. So it doesn't really matter, you know, who like initiated it or whatever, you know, the, the idea was, I mean, there was a war happening. It was a class war, you know, and it was part of the global class war. Um, and the Korean, you know, the, the Koreans from the North, uh, they crossed the 38th parallel and they, they captured Seoul, you know, really within a matter of days. Um, and they kept sweeping, you know, through the peninsula. Um, and within really three months, they had gotten to basically like the southernmost tip of the peninsula. Um, and that's when General MacArthur ordered the invasion and, uh, and US troops, you know, this is really the first was used as a fig leaf for US imperialism. Um, you know, there were like, I think, I don't, you know, there were dozens of nations that supported it and participated in it, but it was really U.S. imperialism's war. Entered and, uh, you know, the reason that the, 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 the communists were able to take, recapture the country so easily is because, you know, nobody fought for the redictatorship. You know, I mean, like, you know, I mean, all battalions would just defect. And when the, you know, when the communists uh, would enter, you know, a, a, a new town, a new country, side, a new city, they would be welcomed as liberators, right? And they would, because there were these people's committees that had been established and they were still there, you know, they were still fighting in the South too, you know, so they were fed and they were clothed and they were, you know, they recruited as they were going, you know, nobody, they didn't put up any resistance, uh, the, you know, uh, the, the armies for the um, Republic of Korea. Um, and so they, they, you know, the U.S. had to come in. Um, and, and use military force. And they were able to sort of push the, Korean, the, the communists back over the 38th parallel for a time. Um, and, uh, and they kept going, you know, they kept pushing them back more and more north. And, you know, they thought like, oh, this is great. You know, we're gonna, this is easy, you know, but really the Koreans were laying a trap for them. Um, and they were leading them deeper and deeper into enemy territory. So that uh, Thanksgiving, you know, when Thanksgiving happened, um, a million volunteer soldiers from the People's Liberation Army in, in the People's Republic of China, uh, they came across the Yalu River, which separates Korea from China. Um, and they just swept, you know, the, the US troops back uh, and reclaimed uh, what was the DPRK. Because, you know, and, and that this is an important thing is that, you know, the, the communists had state power in Korea before they did in China. Right. Uh, and, and they were they were actually really crucial in some of the most strategic battles at the end of the Chinese uh, civil war against to defeat the nationalists. 
uh, especially because they took place in Manchuria, where, you know, the, the Koreans had, I mean, you know, they had decades of struggle uh, under their belts and, you know, they, they provided incredibly uh, crucial military assistance, you know, that if it hadn't been there, who knows how the civil war would have turned out, right? Um, and that's important because oftentimes today it's portrayed like the DPRK is like, or the North Korea, it's okay to say either, um, like, you know, is like the, you know, this like bastard child of China or like it's this, you know, um, you know, like this problem child, right? But in reality, right, it was actually the, the, the Korean communists who helped the, the, the Chinese and the People's Liberation Army take power uh, and reclaim control over their own country. And so they were volunteers, you know, um, and Mao's daughter actually died during that struggle. Um, and the fighting stabilized at the, you know, at the 38th parallel, um, really, I mean, you know, by the end of that year, uh, 1950, yet for, you know, two and a half more years, the United States continued to bomb the North. Um, and this is when, you know, the military industrial complex was first coming about, you know, this is when they first used napalm, um, you know, all these terrible chemical weapons and just, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard that, uh, you know, by the end of 1951, uh, you know, U.S. pilots were complaining there was nothing left to bomb, you know, and that there were very few structures, if any, over one story left standing by the end of the Korean War. Um, and that was in, on July 27th of 1953. Uh, and did the Koreans want to stop fighting? You know, probably not. Uh, they probably wanted to keep fighting. They could have kept fighting. You know, they've been fighting for decades, right? Like, why would we randomly stop? Uh, it was definitely, you know, there was definitely pressure from the Soviet Union, definitely pressure from the People's Republic of China uh, to come to some sort of agreement, right? And so they signed an armistice um, on July 27th, and that's when things sort of officially, you know, ended, right? Um, and there was some stability actually that was created. And was there more to that question? Uh, just about the effect of the war on, on everyday Koreans. I read a statistic of between 11 and 15% of Korea's population was killed. I've seen other numbers too, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be as high as 20%, you know, I mean, it was, yeah, it was a very incredibly deadly war. Um, and uh, actually we just passed the 20th anniversary of uh, the a People's Tribunal. Um, which took place in New York City, um, I think it was September 19th of 2000. And uh, this was uh, the result of some people uh, who were in the Party for Socialism, who are now in the Party for Socialism and Liberation, who had been to Korea and conducted interviews with workers and peasants who had survived the Korean War. And the eyewitness testimony of the victims of US imperialism, uh, both in the North and the South was shared uh, as a US war crimes tribunal. Um, and, uh, you know, hundreds of people came. The only people, of course, who weren't allowed to come were those from the North who had actually lost, you know, their loved ones, as, who had lost their loved ones as a result of the, of the bombing and the invasion. Um, and there's still, you know, I mean, in the same way that uh, the people of Vietnam still suffer the effects of the war, the people of Korea do too, from the, you know, the, the poisoning of the, of the air and the water and the land, the poisoning of the people, um, and of course, the destruction of the country, you know, and all of its infrastructure. I mean, they just, they bombed all the infrastructure uh, and they still weren't able to, to defeat them, you know? I mean, that's, that's the amazing thing. They weren't able to defeat them, uh, even though they literally bombed everything, you know? Which is that uh, before, the, before uh, 1953, Pyongyang was actually known as the Jerusalem of Asia because there were so many churches. Um, but after, but the US destroyed all the churches, you know, uh, they, 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 they bombed all the churches. And so there were no more churches there. And so uh, that's also an important point, you know, to note when the US, you know, talks about the DPRK and, or whatever. I mean, there are actually churches in the DPRK now. Uh, there weren't for a long time, but there are now. But, you know, the reason why there aren't churches is because the US bombed them all. You know, and 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 that was just part of the the sort of overall wanton destruction. The fact that brute force, you know, can never really defeat the workers and the oppressed. And it also, you know, I mean, there are still people like alive who fought in the Korean War, 
right? Um, so, you know, I know someone named Anhak Sap, who I've written about, um, and I've met, met with him, spent a lot of time with him several times. And he, he lives in, in the South, in the, in the civilian control, control zone at the, at the DMZ. Um, and he was from the South. Um, uh, but when the, and, and, and when the, when the uh, United, troops, United States troops came, he welcomed them. He was, a, he was a kid. He grew up with imperialist education. He thought that they were liberators. But then he saw what the US was doing. Um, and he actually went to uh, join uh, the Korean People's Army. Uh, and he fought for the Korean People's Army. And he was captured, I believe, in 1952. And he was imprisoned. Um, and he was imprisoned until the late 1990s. Um, I met him first when I think he was maybe 88 years old. Um, he's, I think, 91 today. Um, he was in prison for, you know, decades. And the, the incredible thing is that he could have been released at any time, um, that, that they offered him, you know, housing. They offered him, like, you know, riches and wealth. They offered him wives. You know, they said, we'll find women for you to live with, right? Um, all you have to do is renounce Juche. And he says, you know, he didn't do that. You know, all he, that's all he had to do. He would have just had to sign a piece of paper that said, I renounce Juche, you know, I'm not a communist. I pledge allegiance to the ROK, whatever. He could have been, he could have been freed 1953, you know? But no, he sat in jail for decades um, and he's still in the South. And I asked him, you know, that, cause there was a, there was a time when there was, um, you know, uh, um, when he could have returned to the, to the North. And if he returned to the North, he would have been like a hero. I mean, he would have lived a great life, right? I mean, people would have like, you know, but he didn't do it. And he's still like every single day he goes to protests. Uh, he's very close with a grouping called the People's Democracy Party of South Korea. You know, every day he goes to protests. And I, you know, I asked him why he didn't do it, why he didn't go back. And he said, you know, I came, you know, I, I came back to the South to free my country and I'm not going to leave until it's free, you know? And so that's the other impact of the war, right? Um, on the people's consciousness, um, especially, you know, the progressive people in, in the South and, and everybody in the North. I'm not going to lie. I don't know about you or Mitch. Uh, I mean, Eddie or Mitch, but I got chills with that story. That's, that's impressive. You that, that sacrifice and that discipline, you know, yeah. I mean, think about, think about that. It's, it's, it's really incredible. Incredible dedication. That would be the kind of story you could tell before practice to get everyone pumped up. So <laughs> you might get fired if you tell that story before practice. Anymore. True. <laughs> well, I think that Anna, he's a very lighthearted person, so I don't think he would be offended by that. And he actually works closely. Well, he, he, he works very closely with Reverend Lee, who you might have seen pictures of because he's the one who set fire to General MacArthur's statue. Um, and he actually set fire to it twice. The first time he wasn't caught, he wanted to get caught. So he set fire to it again. Uh, so the, the last time I saw him, actually, he was in prison for that. Um, and he, he, was, he said he was doing well. He was writing a book of poetry and one of our comrades just came back from the South and got that book of poetry. That's awesome. Um, so just to roll into the next question, um, what sort of tactics has American imperialism been using on the DPRK since the end of the Korean War? Um, and how has American and Western propaganda in general been able to manufacture the existing narrative of the DPRK, which includes but is not limited to it being, quote unquote, the world's greatest threat? Um, also, is the rest of the world as blindly acceptant of this narrative as most Americans are? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, just the last question first. I mean, I think that, you know, Obviously, people in the Western imperialist countries are, you know, nobody more than the United States, of course. I mean, you know, we call the Korean War the Forgotten War, um, you know, and it's, I mean, but Korea is probably the most demonized country in the entire world, you know, and the, the most demonized government, the most demonized party, the most demonized people, um, for sure, you know. But that said, obviously, especially in countries where there are large, even like social democratic parties, you know, um, people look very differently upon North Korea and the DPRK. Um, but, you know, yeah, but the propaganda here is, is powerful. Um, and the, and that's part of the tactics, right? I mean, so obviously the tactics were, um, you know, included trying to, I mean, the Sino-Soviet split, you know, was ultimately a tactic of imperialism, right? To try to overthrow the, the, the workers party in the North, you know, because ever since 1953, you know, when they signed the armistice agreement, there's been an absolute consensus in the US foreign policy establishment 
that Korea that, that the Korean government has to go, you know, that the state has to be abolished um, and that has to be absorbed within the Republic of Korea. And then there's really just debates over, you know, how to do that, right? I mean, the only exception to that was Donald Trump, um, who, you know, questioned that because he wasn't brought up in the U.S. political establishment. You know, he was an outsider, and so he he didn't sort of, you know, and that was his, you know, one of his greatest crimes, right? Maybe his greatest crime, um, according to the U.S. imperialists, not according to us, obviously. Um, so yeah, I mean, economic sanctions, of course, you know, I mean, the, the network of, of sanctions against the DPRK is so intense that, you know, they can't even import graphite, like for pencils, you know, or like lead, because it could be used for weapons, right? Um, and uh, the political war, and the, um, the recruitment of uh, defectors, people who leave. Uh, so, you know, the, what used to be called the, the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, you know, pays about $800,000 if people are able to leave the North and go to the South, um, which is a shit ton of money. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of, I don't, you know, there's a lot I would do for $800,000. Um, that's a very enticing offer. Um, and then of course, you know, um, if you're able to, you know, uh, become sort of a celebrity star and give these talks and these tours, you can make a lot of money. But it's not just about that, it's also the creation really of a shadow government that they want to establish for when the DPRK, they say, falls. Because that's also what they've been saying for decades, is that the government is going to fall, that it's unstable, and that it's just a matter of time. That's what Obama's policy was, strategic patience. It basically meant we're not going to do anything and eventually it's going to collapse. You know, that's what that's what happened in the first Bush administration. It was only under the Clinton administration at the very, very end where they were like, you know what? This government isn't going away and we're gonna have to deal with this government. And uh, that's when the rapprochement happened. Um, and, you know, the secretary of state flew to Pyongyang uh, and, you know, but then of course Bush was elected or, you know, was given the presidency and that was, over, that was overturned. Um, so those are, you know, some of the tactics. I mean, the propaganda war, the economic sanctions, the political sanctions, you know, um, and the constant demonization and propaganda, the defector industry, which by the way, you know, nobody, no like scholar has taken any defector testimony seriously since like 2000, you know, just because it's so unreliable. That Camp 14 book, you know, uh, they, that was published and made famous, the UN star, you know, witness, uh, fabricated his story later admitted he fabricated it. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's, there, you know, nobody takes that seriously except for the US media pretty much, you know, and they publish anything, right? I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, they published an article saying that everybody in, in North Korea had to get the same haircut as uh, with Kim Jong-un, right? You know where they got that story from? A South Korean like tab like a tabloid, you know, like uh, like a National Enquirer. They picked it up on the newswire and they didn't they didn't know who it was from and they just ran with it, you know. And they retracted it, you know. But obviously the retractions like you know on the back of the newspaper, so nobody pays attention to that. But just the fact that people would believe that shit. And I remember when I told that story once when I was in the South uh, to people, and they were stunned. They were like, "Oh my God!" Like people believe that, you know. And I mean, these are progressive people, of course, but. Still, they were like, that, that's absurd, you know? So think about the ways that we've been conditioned that the majority of the population would believe that something like that would happen. Like, like, the, like, the, like the government doesn't have anything better to worry about than like how people wear their hair. You know what I mean? Like they're under constant threat. <clears throat> so we should also include the actual military threats and the actual military interventions in the South China Sea, you know, in East Asia more generally. Uh, the U.S. occupation of Japan, which continues, the militarization of Japan, all these are tactics um, to try to overthrow the, the communist government in the North and try to prevent the liberation of the country, finally. Um, it's, you know, it's just, it's so routine. And I think, unfortunately, you know, uh, there's, there's developed within the left in the United States, you know, a sort of unfortunate tendency to mirror that. Um, and I think there's also a counter tendency that sort of overcorrects for that. Um, that sort of, you know, takes anything that, you know, comes out of the DPRK's uh, official outlets as like sort of gospel or something like that, rather than having a sort of independent assessment 
um, while at the same time, you know, defending the DPRK, not just as an independent state, but as a socialist state, right? Uh, as a state where the workers and the peasants are in control, as a state that, um, you know, is, uh, is organized around the people's needs and not profit. Um, and that's, you know, ultimately that's the truth. And that's, that's the most important thing for us to, to present to people, you know, I mean, obviously to people on the left, that's what we have to present to our friends and our family too. I mean, even if they're not socialists, we need to, we need to defend the DPRK as an independent state that's allowed to do what it wants to do, you know, um, and they should have the right to self-determination and that also has a right to reparations from all the wrong that the U.S. has done, you know, and I, oftentimes when you point that out to people, the sort of sheer hypocrisy of it, you know, you say, well, you know, what if the, you know, I mean, the, the war games, right, the, the uh, full eagle exercises, for example, right, that take place, um, I think those are the ones in the fall, there's also war games in the spring, you know, that include the simulated destruction, the simulated decapitation of the government, um, that include literally flying and dropping dummy nuclear weapons off the coast of Korea, you know, if you're, if you're in the Korean government, if you're in the, if you're in Korea, you know, you don't know if that's a drill or not, right? I mean, just because they say it's a, it's a game and it's a drill doesn't mean that it's a drill, you know, any time it could actually be, you know, and so think about living like that under that immense pressure. And that's all to get, try to get the people, you know, to sort of overthrow the government or to, you know, protest or to create divisions within the, the different factions, you know, the military or the party or the state. Um, these are all myriad tactics of U.S. imperialism um, that operate, you know, within the U.S., within Korea, uh, within Japan also, um, and, you know, within the South too, right? So that's the other major thing. You know, one is that the U.S. doesn't really want Japan to totally militarize because it wants to be dominant. And it's worried that if Japan militarizes, it can become close to South Korea. It can become close to China because, I mean, it's in its own economic interest too, actually, right? And uh, it's in Japan's, you know, potentially interest, potential interest too. China's doing much better than the United States. It's much closer, right? It's also in South Korea's interest to be closer to the North and to be closer to China, to be closer to Japan. Um, you know, the, even the construction of the railway, you know, from the South to uh, through the North into China, um, you know, would be incredible. So the US doesn't want that to happen. You know, obviously they want to overthrow the government uh, in China as well. Um, and uh, those are all, again, these are just additional tactics of imperialism against the DPRK. It's incredible that it's been able to survive so long. Uh, it's really a testament to the, to, the, to the people's consciousness, to their organization, to their social structures and their systems. For sure. I think that was a great explanation of like the, the warfare that Korea has been under constantly, even since the Korean War, which is something I've noticed not a lot of Americans are aware of, you know, including interactions I've been in, you know, with with high profile Internet commentators saying that, you know, uh, acting like we were crazy for saying that Korea is still under warfare, still under, you know, um, imp uh, uh, the the brunt or the boot of imperialism are still being targeted by the U.S. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important there to, to describe the various ways in which the U.S. does that. Um, so thank you for that. And ever since we've crushed them under embargo and left troops at their border, keeping them in a state of constant warfare. People who say that are just tankies. Wait, hold on. North Korea is also responsible for that state of constant warfare. North Korea does illegal nuclear weapons tests and threatens their neighbors constantly. Wait, hold on. Wait, are you suggesting America is responsible currently, like exclusively responsible for North Korea's political isolation? They maintain it deliberately because they know that their state can't exist unless they're engaging in the preconditions that would allow um, it to be propped up by China. Um, and you've already spoken about it quite a bit, um, your time spent in the DPRK, but could you tell us more about that? Uh, what actually inspired you to go? Um, how long were you there? Um, and how did your experience living there and spending time there uh, challenge the narratives you had been told about Korea um, in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. So um, I organized a delegation. We started a grouping um, in 2015 called Korea Peace Tours. And the idea was that you know, uh, we would start bringing people to Korea to see it for themselves, you know, um, because you can't really, you know, you can't really know a country or a people unless you sort of go there. You know, I mean, obviously I'm not 
talking about some argument, you know, taken to the extreme, but I'm just saying that, you know, the reason that we're so liable to all this, you know, manipulation and propaganda is because no, like nobody knows anybody who's been there, you know, like you can't say that stuff about other countries because people be like, well, my cousin did a semester abroad there. He didn't say anything about that. Or, you know what I mean? Like my, my mom's best friend is from there or something like that. So the, the cultural and the social isolation is so key. And that's really the first step to fighting it. And so we organized a delegation of about 15 people. I wasn't part of it at that time. Um, and we spent, you know, they spent 10 days there um, and we uh, organized. So I organized another one in 2017. I can, sorry, sorry, I can't believe it was in 2017. Yes, in August. Um, uh, through Korea Peace Tours. Um, and there were four of us from the United States that went. And then some a co comrade who's in the United States uh, was actually born in the South, um, but is not allowed back there right now. Um, uh, Kiel Chung, Professor Chung, uh, who's the only person born in the South to ever teach at Kim Il-sung University in Pyongyang, which is like, you know, the Harvard of, of you know, the most prestigious school in, in the North. Um, and he is a director of something called the 21st Century uh, Council on International Relations uh, right now. So anyways, we, we organized a trip with the, with the Koreans uh, and with Kiel, um, and we almost weren't able to go because we left um, on August 1st of 2017, Rex Tillerson, announced the US travel ban against Korea. But it didn't go into effect until August 31st or September 1st. So we went and they, they, the Koreans actually didn't think we were gonna come. They, they were like, no, they're not gonna come because that was also when Otto Warmbier had died uh, a couple months earlier, that was in June. So people were, you know, a lot of people were really scared. And, um, you know, there was a big, big, big demonization push against Korea at the time. Um, and so we, we, we got there, you know, I think early August, it's a tough time to go. It's super hot. Um, but, you know, immediately you, you, you just, you know, everything falls apart. The narrative falls apart immediately because just to give one example, like it was easier getting in and out of North Korea than it is getting in and out of the United States. You know what I mean? Like, like, like when, when I, you know, they asked me like, what they asked me if I had pornography and if I had like you know, um, whatever. And like what my occupation was, right? Um, like literally, and that was it. Um, and you know, the US, it's not like that at all, right? I mean, I only got in easily back in because I said I was in Korea and they just assumed I was in South Korea. Um, and of course the black member of our delegation was, was uh, detained when, when, when he was flying back. Um, so that just gives you an example, you know, of how sort of, you know, I mean, it's a really, I mean, we were going, we had historic links to the people and the struggle there, you know, in the movement. So we were going in a position of sort of respect and, you know, comrades, they knew we were comrades. Um, and we would see foreigners, you know, other foreigners, primarily Europeans during the time, they were, they were surprised we were Americans. They, they were there just because of the, the travel ban that was very publicized and Trump, we were there when Trump was threatening to rain fire and fury down on the country, you know? Um, and I remember one night watching the news at a at a at dinner, and um, uh, you know the newscaster. It was basically they were saying like, if you do that, you know, if you keep up these threats, we're going to fire four missiles, you know, by Japan. And they gave the exact coordinates to show like how precise they could be. Um, but you know, it's it's scary. You know, that's what that's how they live like every single day. You know. Um, so while we were there, though, we were able to spend time with uh, students and professors um, and peasants. Uh, and workers, uh, government officials, military officials, uh, leadership in the, the Korean People's Army, um, uh, representatives from the state and from the party, um, and uh, cooperative farmers, uh, healthcare workers, um, and we were able to visit, you know, the farms and research institutes and the universities and the libraries. Um, visit people's homes, you know, they welcomed us into their apartments, new apartments that had just been built in Pyongyang. Um, and we were able to go to a lot of different parts of the countryside, the demilitarized zone, of course, the 38th parallel. Um, and interestingly, we went to the 38th parallel, you know, there's a lot of checks along the way. When we got there, there were no, when we looked to the south, there were no soldiers anywhere. 
And uh, they were like, no, they knew you were coming. And so they all left, you know? So what we did was we left and then they all came back and then we came out and we saw them. You know, they just didn't want us to see like the presence, you know? But it was, it was sad, you know, it was really sad because, and they told us, they were like, we're not upset at them. Those are, those are, you know, like those are, like we feel bad for them. They're under, you know, they're occupied by the United States. You know, we don't want to shoot at them. You know, we, 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 we want to help them. We want to liberate them. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to fire at them. We, you know, don't, don't, you know, uh, we're not here antagonistically, you know, they're not the enemy, right? Those are, those are, are, are you know, they, they were, they use as brothers, right? Um, and so it was, uh, you know, the other thing that I'll say is that it was really, um, you know, uh, they were welcoming and they were open about everything. You know, they were open about problems that they faced. Um, they were open about their histories, their personal lives. They were open to us about everything, you know? Um, and like, for example, when we went to the Sinchon Museum of US War Crimes, which was newly built, um, you know, like they told, you know, the, the tour guide there was like, look at, like, you don't even have to believe what we say. All we want you to do is just try to see things from our perspective. Like, that's all they wanted, you know, try to understand, try to see, you know, what they've gone through. That's really all they wanted. You know, it was like, you know, the idea that these are like propaganda tours are just outrageous. It is true that there are like restrictions on certain travel. We didn't have a lot because of like the people that we were with. Uh, we were able to really go where we wanted to go, but also like, we always had somebody with us, like, but maybe not, maybe not somebody from the North or like an official representative, but you know, somebody, a Korean, because, you know, like if I'm walking around, like, you know, going to the grocery store in Pyongyang, people are going to be like, there's something's going on. Like this, per you know, this is not right. You know what I mean? Like, so, um, so that, you know, but like other, you know, other groups are able to, you know, move much more freely um, and without as much suspicion as like somebody, you know, who's from the U S uh, but we were treated, you know, just, just with incredible, um, you know, incredible hospitality, the same hospitality I've encountered in the South. Um, and, you know, uh, we, you know, we had an amazing time getting to know the people and getting to know the country and talking about politics. And it's clear, you know, that there's, um, you know, that there's different debates happening within the party. Obviously, it presents, an, you know, a united front. But, you know, I mean, I'm sure that, um, you know, there's, well, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un actually, <clears throat> uh, you know, wanted to increase the number of like free trade areas uh, in the country, you know, like uh, special economic zones. Um, there's people that want, you know, a little bit more opening up, people that want a little bit more cultural opening up, you know, people that might be a little bit more social democratic. There is a social democratic party in the DPRK, although it's like not that different from the workers party. It's pretty much just so that they can like interface with the social democratic parties of like Europe and other, other places in the country. Um, but there's, there's three different political parties that, um, you know, sit in the, in the people's assembly. Um, and like, we went to, you know, uh, like not fairs, but what do you call it? Like, yeah, I guess like fairs, you know, like ride rides, you know, do, do that kind of stuff. Um, of course, and see the historic sites, um, and like talk with the, talk with the, talk with farmers, you know, like, and learn that. They're organized around cooperative cooperative lines and that they elect their leadership every year and their leadership interfaces with the state to determine, you know, they tell them what the material conditions are on the ground, what they're capable of producing. The state tells them what they need, right? And 50% of the produce actually in, in the MIGOC collective farm, which is where we went, goes to the maternity ward down the street. You know, that's where they grow food, they eat the rest, they might trade the rest in a sort of like Kind of you know small open market situation like a barter situation um you know but that's what they're growing food for you know it's a very different kind of you know ethos and work ethic you know in the workplaces they have musicians play they have nurseries you know everything is very integrated there's children you know walking around the street and that's the thing too is you know you can't really i don't know if you ever met a child but you can't really tell a child what to do right um you can't tell all the children in pyongyang to like behave right um but uh, you know, so you can see it like when the children are walking along alone, you know, at 9 p.m. in the middle of the city, you know, with not a care in the world, right? Um, without a fear of being in danger, you know, you can see what kind of culture that is, what kind of society that is, you know. Um, we saw a lot of we saw a lot of military people there, but what but the military, you know, like when the military, when the people in the army are walking down the street, like their their shirts are unbuttoned, as I said, it was really hot, you know, they're not carrying weapons, right? 
And it's not like people like avoid them or look down, you know? I mean, if you see, like if you're in New York City, which basically is just like militarily occupied all the time, you know, like they're in the corners, it's unbelievable, the police or what, you know, the hybrid military police, you know, like, I mean, you you know, you're like looking down, you don't want to draw attention to yourself, you like cross the street, you know, they don't do any of that. They wave, they say hello, you know, because the, the, the army is out, like they're building houses, you know, they're planting, uh, you know, crops, planting trees, things like that, you know, and also like people are in the army. And so everybody knows somebody in the army. And so it's not like it's a separate entity, you know, it's part of society, right? Um, and we were able to visit the schools, talk with the teachers, talk with the students. So we were given a lot of uh, really amazing opportunities. Um, and, you know, it's really, it's really great, but it also breaks my heart because when I go to the South, you know, like my comrades there can't do that, you know, and it's like so terrible. I mean, I can't go there right now because of the travel ban, which the U.S. imposes. The DPRK would, would let us come, you know, right now, um, but the U.S. won't let us come. And so that's really, I think, that, you know, such a tragedy. And people in the South, you know, it's not just the progressives that want to go to the North, you know, like I remember speaking at a conference one time and uh, you know, this young woman, college student was just like, you know, we want to go camping there. Like, we want to go to the mountains there. We want to go camping there, you know? Um, and, you know, they should be able to, like, it's their country. It's just, it's incredible, right? If it's just because of U.S. imperialism that they can't do that. Um, and it's a situation that can't last forever. You know, all wars have to end. The division has to end. The division will end. Um, it's just a question of sort of under what terms, you know, the DPRK has always been incredibly consistent about their position um for you know basically like a a federated state you know two different governments right one state um and you know but it's it's u.s imperialism and the the the, the, it's even u.s imperialism in the south right because you know for example during the last military exercises which they had to they had to scale them down right because of covid they still they still took place in august and september but they had to scale them down um, but, which is good, right? I mean, you want them to scale down, but the problem is, is that the South Korean government and the, the military, in order to sort of get autonomy from the US have to prove their own military capability, right? So it, they're caught in a, such a tricky situation, right? Um, where like, you know, there's a lot of, social democratic people, you know, in the government and even in the military institution, you know, I mean, they might, you know, they're not communists. There's, they might even be, you know, like, you know, politically opposed to the North, but they, they believe that like, they should be able to travel there. You know what I mean? And like, they should be able to see their relatives who they haven't seen in 80 years. Right. Um, and, you know, that's like the sort of, you know, that's like, you know, I mean, I, I was there, I was in the South um, during the first summit between uh, Chairman Kim and President Moon. And everybody there was so joyous, you know, everybody like this, I mean, I was at lunch and this, this guy I was with, he just kept showing me pictures of them, like shaking hands and like crossing the DMZ, like, and just smiling and just like, you know, like, I, like I was looking at his phone for like 30 minutes and he was just flipping through these pictures, smiling, you know? Um, and then of course there's like, you know, a hundred like super reactionary people protesting, but like that's an, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people in Seoul where I was at the time, right? I mean, it's incredibly insignificant. Everybody was so happy, you know? And President Moon's rating basically increases and decreases based on how inter-Korean uh, cooperation's going. Because, you know, for the young people too, it's like, cause they, they, they you know, the, the economic situation there is so bad in the South. Um, and it would be so much better if, you know, even they were able to open up the Kaesong Industrial Complex, you know, and get that going again. Um, and again, open up the railways, you know, uh, a lot of the uh, places, a lot of the groups that I, that I would work with, we would have events at the, at the railway workers union, you know, because they need to correct, you can see the railroad, like it's there, it keeps going, you could, you could go there, you know, and you could enter, you know, you could have more trade with China, for example. I, that actually leads me to, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your experiences in South Korea, because um, I recently saw a documentary called uh, To Kill Alice, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, um, about a writer and musician, Shin and Yun Mi, 
Shin and me, who uh, after traveling to North Korea and writing a book about her experiences there, uh, she went on a tour of the South talking about it. Um, and she ended up being driven out of the Republic of Korea by state prosecution and, and uh, far right terrorism. Actually, there was an incident of terrorism at one of the talks. Um, so it seems like there is this reactionary element that will will shun and go after anybody that even says anything you know at all positive about DPRK. So I was wondering if any of the groups that you uh, you met or talked to um, had suffered any similar hardships in in the Republic of Korea. Yes. Yes. Um, so, you know, the the national security law is like the biggest struggle, you know, that the South Korean progressive movement faces because the national security law instituted under the under the U.S. imposed re dictatorship, you know, makes it a, makes it a crime in prison to 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 mention, you know, to 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 say DPRK, to, to talk about North Korea, really to say communism, to have works by Marx um, or Lenin or Kim Il-sung, you know to speak favorably about socialism, it's a crime, you know, um, and to, you know, I mean, even talking about reunification can be a crime. Um, and when I went, there used to be a grouping, uh, the situation, you know, I mean, it gets better and it gets worse in terms of the, the, the government, the social struggles. Um, obviously during the sunshine period, uh, Kim Dae-jung, uh, you know, it was a little bit more open um, when the, the June 15th summit in 2000, which, you know, a historic summit that's still celebrated. There's, I, you know, I visited the June 15th committees that they have all over Korea, all over the world. I mean, I haven't visited them all over the world, but they are all over the world, um, you know, to celebrate that. And uh, there was, when I went first to the South, it was in 2016 in the summer uh, with a group called, uh, at the time, so it doesn't, doesn't exist any longer, but, um, you know, it was like the Korean, the Organization for Independent Korean Reunification and Democracy. And the reason why they were that group is because they had formerly been part of a group called um, the, the United uh, People's Party or the UPP. United People's Party or United Progressive Party? Maybe somebody can look that up. Um, they were grouping of basically all the different, like they were a coalition of all the left forces from social Democrats and anarchists and Trotskyists to like, you know, communists to whatever liberals. Um, there was United there was really, Progressive, United Progressive Party. United Progressive Party. Thank you. Um, and uh, uh, you know, and they had you know representatives in parliament and everything. Um, and then the Park Gun Hay administration or regime really uh, declared had the had the Supreme Court declare them illegal um, based on this ridiculous idea that they were agents of the North. You know, uh, and so they were you know they were disbanded. Uh, their their parliamentary officials were arrested. Their you know their membership was arrested. Their offices were raided. They were driven underground. They were disbanded. Right, um, and it was a real blow to the movement. So this new grouping was had arisen, and they had saw you know I mean the first time I was there, um, uh, you know I mean every time I've been there pretty much I visited a political prisoner, somebody who's in in prison there. Prisons I mean are they're a little bit different. Like you know they're not like the U.S. where they're like you know. Um, I mean, not that they're great or anything like that, but they're, they're different. It's like much, you know, I don't know if you've ever tried to go into even like a local jail, but it's like, you know, you got to get there at a certain time and like, you know, go through this really intense, you know, surveillance and security and all this kind of stuff and like, you know, whatever. Um, but, um, you know, like pretty much everybody in the movement there has spent at least some time in jail, um, oftentimes for violating the national security law. Um, which, as I said, is like really the main, you know, the main obstacle. So the first time I went in June, in June 2016, I visited Kim Hae-young, who was the director uh, or who was involved with the Korean Alliance for Independent Reunification and Democracy, uh, a prisoner of conscience, you know, and a cancer patient, actually, um, and who was denied treatment. Um, and she was uh, the victim of a security, like, anti-communist breach, uh, basically. Uh, Amnesty International was even on her case and eventually she was released and I was able to see her in Washington DC a couple of years later. Um, but then, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, then another leadership was arrested, right? I mean, because you can't talk about these things, but I will say that the situation has changed quite 
quite drastically in a sense. And that the first time I was there, it was a Korean, it was this, this grouping. And I was there as a professor with the, uh, with the peace movement, right? Because I'm a professor, I'm able to speak more openly about things there. Um, I don't have the same restrictions because I'm a US citizen also, but I can talk, I can say the words communism and socialism. I mean, not like in a forum. I can't say them like if we're in the taxi, I can't say those things, you know, or at dinner. I remember one time, one time I said chupe, which is cheers, uh, but that's how they say it in the North. And they were like, don't say that. That's not, we don't say it. We'd say it different down here. Uh, but I learned, you know, some, that's where most of my Korean that I know comes from. But um, uh, the, you know, I, I, when I'm, if I'm giving a public talk, I can, I can present, you know, any analysis I want, right? But then the next time I was there was, I believe in 2018, it might've just been the next year actually. Uh, but yeah, after Pak Gun-hye was overthrown through the candlelight revolution, and you know the national security law is still in effect, but there's a little more openness. And actually, during the candlelight revolution, before Pak Geun-hye was overthrown, the Korean uh, Alliance for Reunification, Independent Reunification Democracy, forms the People's Democracy Party, which was the first, which was a very bold move to do. It was a very, you know, they were anticipating sort of the victory of the revolution, you know, the, the movement um, correctly, and they, you know, they declared their party rights on the square where the protests were happening. It was really, it was really quite incredible uh, to see their inauguration um, of the PDP, like during, excuse me, during the, during the movement, um, Kim Hae-young was still in prison at the time. She's in the leadership. Um, and they, and I was able to go um, later, you know, as a representative of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Right, which tells you, you know, how things have changed a little bit in terms of the opening up, right? Uh, but there's still like, it could still change any single day. You know, I mean, they're still followed. They're still heavily policed. They can't train comrades ideologically inside the country. Um, they are prevented from leaving randomly. You know, one time when I was going home, um, uh, somebody was coming with, you know, Yang Go-in was, was supposed to come with me. She was gonna go to another country to see somebody. Uh, but they wouldn't let her leave, um, you know. So these kind of things happen all the time. The 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 restrictions on movement, the arrests, you know, spending, um, you know, just I, everybody in the movement has spent like at least a year in prison or will, you know, for uh, for being in the struggle for being in the struggle. Um, but that's that's how dedicated they are. That's how disciplined they are. You know, the the PDP, for example, actually was the only grouping in the South to send somebody to uh, Kim Jong-il's uh, morning in uh, morning ceremony. And they knew that she would never be allowed back in the country, you know, uh, but they felt it was that important for them to send a representative to actually participate in, in the, um, you know, in the ceremonies, in the morning ceremonies that, that they did that, you know, that's how, that's how important it is, you know, to the struggle there. Um, so there's an incredible amount of repression in the South and it's not just the political repression, it's also, you know, the economic oppression and the, the everyday life oppression of, you know, the U.S. military bases, like you can't get from one side of Seoul to the other because the U.S. military base is in the middle of it. You got to go around it, you know, like everything you do. The U.S. embassy is like bigger than the parliament in the central square, right? You know, there's a Pyeongtaek military base, which is the largest overseas military base, which has numerous golf courses in it, right? And it's constantly expanding. And uh, they, they're just displacing these, you know, entire neighborhoods, entire communities, and they're farming communities, right? So even if they build them housing, they don't have jobs, right? And then the farms that are left around it, you've got airplanes flying up and down, which is terrible for, you know, the livestock, right? There's all the pollution for the, for the earth. So there's just so many aspects of daily life. And then there's, of course, the cultural colonialism, you know, colonization, um, where, you know, the, the, the language has been sort of anglicized. There's a lot of English, there's, you know, US corporations are around. Um, and that's something that you never, you know, you don't see that in the, in, the, in the DPRK, obviously, right? Everything there is Korean, Korean dress, Korean language, Korean culture, Korean music, Korean film, you know, there is, you know, I will say that there is, U.S. culture there, you know, like at the at the library, you know, you can you know rent CDs of the Beatles and you know Harry Potter DVDs and books and stuff like that. But like nobody really wants to, you know, because they like Korean things there. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like being like saying that people in the U.S. like 
can't have access to Kim Il-sung's works, right? But like people in the US aren't unfortunately interested in them, right? Um, I mean, it's, it, this is a terrible analogy, but you know what I'm saying? Like they just don't, they don't really care. They're like, why would we want Harry Potter? Like we got our own culture here, you know? Like that's what we like. Like, right. we, you know, we don't want, we don't want that stuff. So um, yeah, so there's, a, there's an incredible amount of repression just coming at people from all sides. The economic situation is, is terrible. Um, and the housing situation is really bad. And the US takes up so much space, you know, um, the, the bases could be expropriated and how's it, the housing question could be solved for everybody, you know? Uh, comrade, I just oh. want to step in. We have a very little bit of time left, around 10 minutes. Um, so I, I, it's a difficult question, but do you mind differentiating um, or, or telling us what's sort of different about uh, Juche? from other mainstream forms of Marxism. And if you could do that in less than five minutes, which I know is a task, um, that yeah. would be great. Well, Marxism is a generalization of the experience and knowledge of the collective struggle of the working and oppressed classes. You know, And Marx was clear about that, that he not only supported anti-colonial struggles, but believed that anti-colonial struggles could spark revolutions in, uh, cap in advanced developed capitalist countries. Um, and then Leninism, you know, is the sort of uh, the development of Marxism in terms of organizational forms, strategic flexibility, uh, tactical flexibility, alliances, you know, the sort of application of it. Uh, and Juche is the, is the application of Marxism and Leninism within the Korean uh, situation, you know, within the Korean peninsula and the history of it. Um, it really came about though, um, you know, there's a famous speech, I think December 28th, 1955, about establishing Juche and ideological work. And really a lot of it had to do with the fact that that was during the Sino-Soviet split. And there were factions inside the party that wanted to, you know, follow China. There were factions that wanted to follow the Soviet Union, not just politically and economically, but also even culturally, right? Uh, who felt like they should adopt Soviet style, you know, art and aesthetics, it's, right? Um, and so Kim Il-sung developed Juche as a way to like reassert the centrality of Korea and maintain independence um, between these two powers. And so to work with both of them without taking a side, you know, in the same way that we in the US support the DPRK, you know, and its social system and defend it without necessarily having to do everything and agree with everything that they ever say, right? That's what Juche is for them. Um, and that's really was the main purpose of it, you know, and continues to be the main purpose of it. And that's why, you know, the, who are the countries who did that? Well, Cuba and the DPRK and who survived the overthrow of the Soviet Union and the, you know, socialist bloc. Um, Cuba and the DPRK, you know, I mean, the People's Republic of China did too, but very vastly different circumstances. But I mean, I think that that's really it. I will say that there are, you know, I mean, you know, Juche means uh, subjecthood. Um, that's a translation that I encountered when I was there. It was, it was affirmed that that's a better translation than self-reliance. And it just, you know, it's about being a subject of history, right? And that's what Marxism is, right? You know, history begins with communism, right? History begins with the struggle and it's about the, sub, it's about the subjects of history, you know, becoming the subjects of history and no longer being subjected to the dominators. Revolutions are the locomotives of history. We had uh, more questions about, uh, I was gonna ask you about Paulo Freire um, and his 100th anniversary, which was celebrated recently, but we'll have to get you on again to talk more about uh, critical pedagogy and, uh, and that aspect of your work and your research. But thank you very much, Derek, for uh, coming and we yeah. really appreciate uh, your conversation. Yeah, thanks for the questions. I appreciate getting to know you. <laughs>